Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, our ramble meets this week as a goalkeeper capped 82 times by England and once by Great Britain. She played for both Liverpool and Everton, won the FA Cup with the latter, and her natural curiosity and desire to broaden her mind has taken her to Alabama, Pittsburgh and Iceland as well to play and study. Now a television pundit and still very connected with the sporting world on many levels, welcome Rachel Brown Finnis. Rachel, I hope you're well. I feel like you're about to homeschool me with everything that's over your uh, over your shoulders. But how is it all going with with the pandemic and with your kids? Very well, thanks, Mark. It's uh, as you said. I've got I'm surrounded by phonics uh, posters and pictures of mermaids that have been coloured in. Uh, but my daughter who's just started reception. Uh, my little one, two, who's two and a half, uh, he's still going into nursery, so that provides some relief. But you know, it's all about ad- adapting, isn't it? And survival. And that's what our race has always been about. So, uh, yeah, it's just cracking on. We're lucky that we've got outside space, garden, climbing frame, beach just across there. So we're making the most and we're we're not shy of the weather here. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, you've got the added 
not complication, but reality that and we can see what you're wearing there in your gilet, the Masters uh, logo, that your husband Ian is Tommy Fleetwood's caddy, so he's away at the moment as well. I mean, you're both used to the other being away over, over the time you've known each other, but particularly in a pandemic, you haven't got Daddy around much as well at the moment. Yeah, and him swanning around in the sunshine, <laughs> you know, saying how, how hard it is because it's so hot. Doesn't always uh, sit easy with me, but uh, no, he's 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 you know it was the chance of a lifetime when he took this job on, and I fully support him. And of course, as uh, you know, it, it's it does become a little bit more difficult logistically. Uh, thankfully, I've got his mum just around the corner who's uh, very keen to help out with uh, the children to help me be able to work. So you know, I found a great little support team, and so. Uh, I'm very thankful for that. And yeah, we, we make things work. Well, brilliant. Well, I, I know that having worked with you so often, you do that fantastically. You talk about Ian's mum. Let's go back to the beginning. What about your own family growing up? Did you come from a football family, as it were? I'd say a sporty family, uh, not a football family at all. Um, they weren't actively opposed to football. They just had no interest in it. I grew up in Burnley. Uh, my parents still live in the same house that they always have done, just five minutes up the road from Turf Moor. Uh, so we could hear the games, we could hear the fans, you know, from our garden. Um, uh, and it's very much part of the town. Um, but my dad was a, a swimmer and a, a fell runner. Uh, everything kind of, uh, being active was a really big part of growing up. We'd always go on camping holidays and be riding bikes and scrambling about on mountains. But no, football was never, certainly never part of what we did until... I suppose the first memory I have uh, was Burnley getting to the the uh, very much coveted Sherpa Van Trophy final um, back in 1988, I think it was. And as an eight-year-old and my younger brother as a six-year-old uh, hopped on the train with my mum and dad, along with, I'd say, the majority of the, um, of the town of Burnley to go down to London, which in itself was a huge adventure. Uh, and, you know, had caps on and the, the scarves. And I remember, vividly remember walking down Wembley Way and just being surrounded by fans of, uh, you know, with Claret Blue, we were playing Wolves that day. Uh, so the colours were amazing. And I think that is what stays with more than anything was the noise. It was the old Wembley, so it was a, more than 100,000 capacity, uh, the excitement, not really knowing what was going on on the pitch, but that, that real swell of excitement, that was, I think, probably like my light bulb moment where I thought, I want some more of this. And, and whether that was going to be on the pitch, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be, you know, just following Burnley or football. I wasn't sure, but it lit that, that excitement for me. Um, and so, yeah, from then on, uh, I started to um, dive around in the playground. I think I always had that streak of adventure in me uh, that, that kind of uh, sense of not really having much thought for my own welfare and safety. And I think goalkeeping goes hand in hand with, with that kind of, that, uh, that not loose cannon, but, you know, I, I loved mountain bike and I'd just go flying down hills and not think about what might happen. And I can imagine there are a lot of kind of quite scary, hairy moments for my parents uh, from an early age. Um, I always did gymnastics as well growing up, always swam um, regularly, you know, before school. And so, you know, fitness was a big part of, of my family, but it was certainly that was the turning point. You know, football for me became kind of everything. I loved it. Uh, you know, you're back in the day of having four channels on the telly and, and living for kind of match of the day and, 
and those snippets of football, you know, it's all around us everywhere um, that you can consume it in any way you want nowadays. It was very different back then. Um, but yeah, I always felt I was going to be a goalkeeper. Um, that kind of mentality, I suppose, you needed fitted with my character. Simple as that. It's amazing when you mention it there, Rachel, because I'm a lot older than you, but you know that you're too polite to say so. Last Sunday, there were more live matches on Sunday alone than in the whole of a football season when I was growing up, where there's basically the FA Cup final and a couple of England matches. I mean, it, it's 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 incredible. Growing up in Burnley as well, I think, because Burnley is such one of those special places where everybody in Burnley, all right, 95% of people in Burnley support Burnley. There are very few towns like that. Newcastle will be another one, to be fair, isn't it? Which means I think you... Once you're cognizant of it all, you get a real sense of what a football club can mean to a community. And it, it sounds like you you latched onto that walking up Wembley Way and seeing your, your whole town there. Very much so. Um, it, it was uh, here uh, and so in the newspaper um, around the time that, you know, it was a ghost town that weekend because everyone had literally gone down to, to Wembley. Um, and, you know, it Supporting Burnley has absolutely been at the heart of it. And as you said, they're a huge part of the community. It's what everybody talks about. There's, you know, being honest, there's not much, not too much else going on in the town to get excited about. And, you know, we rolling back to 1988 and those early days, even the football wasn't anything to get particularly excited about. I, mean, I think we just survived uh, the season um, of going out the football league. And, uh, you know, it was at times hard watching division three, division two. I remember going to um, playoffs when they started to exist. In my early teens, we went to a playoff final at Wembley and that was so exciting. I think I was 13, uh, but I think that was to maybe go up to the lofty heights of the championship potentially. So it wasn't, it wasn't the glamour of the Premier League as it is now. And I'm not saying everyone's jumping on the bandwagon because clearly they're not, but I think Burnley fans support their team through thick and thin because they are absolutely at the heart of the community. Um, and, I, you know, I got the chance later on to actually work physically in the club for uh, a university, UCFB, uh, which are now based at Wembley and at other football stadiums. Uh, and to see really the reach and the, the strength of football, how it impacts on literally the doorstep of the community, the doorstep of Turf Moor. It just makes me, I guess, prouder and prouder of the club that I've grown up to love. And and people, for our younger listeners, they, they might have clocked. So the Sherpa Van Trophy was sort of like a, a third and fourth tier FA Cup. And of course, you just said they were playing Wolves. So it just shows. Keep on dreaming because, of course, Wolves and, uh, and Burnley now both in the Premier League. So you always say you wanted to be a goalkeeper. When you were growing up, the FA banned mixed gender teams. Did that make it difficult at some stage to find a team to play for? I mean, girls football, thankfully today, it's great. You want to play, you're a girl, not a problem. I think you'll find a team near you. But... That wasn't necessarily the case once upon a time. No, you're absolutely right, Mark, because uh, as I started to take an interest and start to play in the primary school, my teacher, Mr Lombard, the PE teacher, um, he took a bit of persuading uh, initially to let me go and do PE with the boys, um, which was the precursor to them playing in the school football team. Uh, once he did let me go and uh, play on the playing fields just down the road from my primary school, um, you know, he realised that I loved it and that, you know, I was doing all right. So I played for the boys football team. I then joined a, a Sunday league boys team called Bank Hall United um, and played for them in goal. But then you're right, when I got to secondary school, got there, no girls team and I couldn't play mixed football. So I, 
for a year at least I played no football whatsoever other than on the the, the uh, playground at secondary school. Um, I remember going training. There was this uh, newfangled um, AstroTurf that was built just down the, the road. Um, and there was a boys team that let me train with them. So I'd go down. And I think it was Leighton James who used to play for Burnley. His son was in the team, in this boys team. And I think it was the bank hall team that rolled over to the kind of secondary school age. And they let me come and train with them. Uh, so that was something, but I didn't play for a team probably. I think it was, I was definitely in year eight. Uh, and it was partway through and I actually had to join a women's team. So at that point at the age of 12 and being about seven stone and probably about five foot two, uh, I joined Accrington Stanley Ladies. Uh, and so, yeah, it was quite a, a leap of faith. Um, I remember that first ever game that I played in and we were playing against Crew Robbins uh, goodness knows what tier we were both playing in. Uh, but I remember my mum saying to me after the match that she thought I might die at some point uh, as I went flying down at the feet of, you know, a 30-odd-year-old seasoned kind of tier 12 player. Um, and, you know, it just it didn't ever cross my mind that that might be not a brilliant thing to do. Uh, it was really exciting. I loved it. And that's the thrill of being a goalkeeper. But it could have been a barrier. It could have been, you know, that I didn't have a girls team to play for. Uh, and again, I kind of persuaded my, my PE teacher um, at secondary school. She was um, enjoyed football. She played volleyball as well. And, and with kind of my mutual love for it and hers, we formed a girls team at the school. So at least I had kind of regular game time in those early days when certainly not all secondary schools had girls football teams. We had that. Um, but then playing for Accrington Stanley week in, week out, we weren't very good. Um, I remember we lost that game 6-0. And I remember a few games on, we lost 12-0 and I got player of the match in that one. So, I, I mean, my <sighs> advice to any young goalkeeper is play for a really rubbish team and you get loads of practice. You get lots of practice. And then <laughs> how, how did you, how easily did you persuade your parents, age 12 or 13, that you wanted to go to the great Bob Wilson's football school, soccer school, goalkeeping school in London. How easy was it to persuade them to do that? Well, I feel like any young uh, footballer at that age, they probably got Match Magazine, one of the few football magazines you could get at the time. And, you know, I'd read it cover to cover every single week. And in the back, there's an advert for uh, Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. Uh, and it was a residential camp in uh, over the Easter holidays. And uh, I thought that how amazing would that be to go and to, to work with other goalkeepers, to be coached as a goalkeeper. Um, and so, you know, I, I bugged them and promised it would be, you know, my Christmas presents for the next five years, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it never, I was never deterred by the fact it was going to be in London, that it was going to be residential. It was just, a, the only thing I could see was it was goalkeeper training and it was a goalkeeper camp and what better holiday to go on than to just go and be a goalie for five days uh, so you know they, they agreed and took me down uh, and so yeah arrived at this big boarding school that was obviously empty over the Easter holidays that they used for to, to house all of us goalkeepers and you know as parents kept leaving you know uh, leaving kind of their, their children for this camp um, I was kind of looking around and thinking um, all right there's um, kind of can't see any other girls here and uh, I think the lads were sort of looking around at me because I think the goalies, the youngest were maybe like eight or nine and it was all the way up to adults, 18-year-olds on there. 
they, they were looking around and thinking, why is someone's sister still hanging around? You know, come on, get on the road sort of thing. Uh, and it was, you know, I had that initial sinking feeling, but then I thought, you know, it's, it's still all the things why I was buzzing about it just rose to the surface. And it was, it was, it, I feel it was such a positive thing to do because, and I feel like it's replicated a lot of situations and scenarios moving forwards, you know, an uncomfortable situation. Well, get on with it because either leave or just get on with it. And, uh, you know, those first kind of sit down, lunches that we had and the lads were not quite sure really how to speak to me or who to you know whether to kind of say come and sit with us or it was a bit uncomfortable but you know as soon as we got out on the pitch and I was uh, with my coach Mick Payne um, who I'm still good friends with today um, he treated me like a goalkeeper and that's all I kind of asked for didn't treat me any different to any of the lads um, and really that chance I took um, to kind of want to get better it provided so many opportunities moving forwards. Was was that the was that the five days? Do you think the turning point, which went from Rachel loves her football, she likes being a goalie, to actually Rachel saying, "I want to be a goalkeeper." Uh, I think part of that dropped when everything that they did, the the training sessions, the technical sessions. I felt like I was really excelling at them and really kind of at, loving every minute of it because you got to understand there was not really any goalkeeper coaching and I wasn't really part of a team. Um, and certainly there was no infrastructure, there were no centres of excellence, uh, no way of talent necessarily being picked up at a young age in women's football at that time. So as much as it, it reinforced how much I loved being a goalie, what it did do, they were able to signpost me then to other teams. So uh, my coach, Mick Payne, sat down with me at the end and uh, said, look, you should be playing at a higher level than what you're doing. Um, we're going to find out who to get in contact with. Ultimately, they got in contact with Sylvia Gore, who was, uh, I think, head of Liverpool County FA and was involved at Liverpool Football Club, who were in the top division. Um, I think this was either the first or second year I went to Bob Wilson's um, and uh, got me in touch with them and got me a trial there. So in the summer of being, because I turned 15 in the July um, I was 14, went on trial at Liverpool, uh, signed in that summer. And uh, I wouldn't have got that opportunity had I not have gone to Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. We'll talk about playing in goal age 15 for Liverpool in the FA Cup final itself. Rachel, what, what did your friends say all this? I think today... No one would bat an eyelid. You know, you, you girls play football as much as they can play hockey or, you know, sing, art, play cricket, whatever. But let's be honest, slightly different in 1992, 93. What did your friends say? I think they just, they maybe thought it was a bit, I, I don't know what they thought. They've always just seen me as Rachel the footballer. Um, it was never kind of, I was never seen to be an oddity. I might have been the only one, but I never... I never felt an outsider. I never felt not part of it. I never felt out of uh, kind of your usual cliques and groups of friends that you have at school. Um, and so the lads always accepted me playing football in the yard. Um, so, you know, there was, there was never kind of any opposition to what I did. It was only real support. Um, and certainly at school when it came to that time when in, in the f end of the first season uh, that I was doing my GCSEs um, that I went down to London to play in the FA Cup final for Liverpool after starting the season, not expecting to feature at all. And then just before the season started, 
the England goalkeeper who was there at the time decided she was going to retire. So a newly turned 15-year-old thrown in very much at the deep end. Uh, I remember playing my first ever game for Liverpool. It was against Arsenal at Anfield. Arsenal had just won the league. Players had just come back from the World Cup. And I was, I was surra- I didn't even know there was an England women's team until I joined in pre-season at Liverpool. And I uh, was thinking, we're a bit thin on the ground here. There's only about eight players at pre-season training. And then a week later, about 12 players arrived back and they'd all suntanned and they'd been in the World Cup in Sweden. And I genuinely had no clue there was an England team until that point. Um, so fast forward a year and playing in that FA Cup final, balancing my GCSEs. It was a bit surreal, but, you know, I loved it. And I knew I had to do well at school because that's my mum's a teacher. Um, that was the that was the deal, was it? Well, that was the deal, was it? You could play football, but carry on working hard. I, honestly, it was the best bargaining tool ever having football. You know, a number of times I got grounded for doing things, and it was like you can go out during the week, but you can't go out on a Saturday or Sunday if you're grounded. And I was like, football, I'm missing football, and so that you know anything I was thinking I might want to do wrong or you know all the usual stuff as a 14 15 16 year old it quickly made sense to just toe the line um I remember my head teacher at secondary school was awesome with um helping me organize my days because at this point you know from Burnley I was traveling to Liverpool twice a week midweek traveling the country at weekends um and he organized a revision timetable for me which I still remember to this day was the most powerful organizational tool I could have ever wished for which meant that I could still enjoy my football and do well at that but also organized me for doing well at my exams and I've kind of used that organizational principle as if you've got half an hour do something in it don't just sit there and let it while away uh, this morning I had 45 minutes in between dropping the kids off and uh, and a zoom meeting at 10 I was like right I'm going to go out and do a power walk because that's all my body's capable of now. Uh, but I did it, you know, because I had that time. So those principles have been ground into me. And and obviously the principles of academia were ground into you by your mum, as you say, being a teacher. So in 1998, so you're now 18 and you've played for Liverpool in the cup final already. You go to the USA. Um, is that as much, I'm guessing there are lots of different reasons for going at, at that age, were there? What, what were well, they? The, the, main, the main one was uh, that contact Mick Payne from the Bob Wilson's goalkeeper camp. We kept in touch. Uh, in between my GCSE years in college that summer, he said, why don't you come out on a goalie camp, uh, coaching camp in the US that I run? He's been going out for various summers running it. Uh, so I, I went out, flew out on my own as a 15-year-old, um, went to, was getting picked up by a guy called Ron Buffington. That's all I knew. From um, not, Ron, not, not Ron Burgundy, but almost, yeah. <laughs> well, it was before Google. I couldn't even yeah. Google what Alabama was. Or anything. Uh, but I stayed with a host family. Again, never met them before, just kind of showed up at their door. Um, and so stayed with them for that six weeks during the summer and um, worked on this camp, loved it. And uh, all I didn't know, but I was training with a, a girls team as well over there. The daughter of the family I was staying with played for the team. I just went along and did some training sessions I think I played one game, the Alabama Angels. And um, I didn't know that, I didn't know anything about the college system for a start. Um, but I was scouted apparently in that one outing that I, I played in. And uh, so within the next six months of coming back from that summer, I started getting letters through my door um, from the University of Alabama, Mississippi State, University of Mississippi. And this whole new kind of world of possibility opened up. Um, and so, yeah, that is how that opportunity came about. 
so at 18, packed my bags, mum and dad dropped me off at the airport and off I went to Alabama. Well, we can tell you're very adventurous and you and you always were um, and, and you're very intelligent and you want to broaden your mind and you absorb of what's going on around you, which meant that you found it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, in, increasingly difficult in Alabama because of it's the deep south, uh, the, the racial prejudice, the, the religious hypocrisy. It just, describe your two years there. I think it was probably a good thing that I didn't or couldn't Google what... what you know, anything about the place because I didn't had no preconceptions about it and no prejudgments on, on anything that had gone before. Uh, I literally arrived with, you know, another 18 new recruits um, in the freshman year as it was. And, um, you know, loved the heat of Alabama. It was, it was uh, all completely new and different training sessions, different environment and found out about the history of the university. It's, you know, 120,000 seats a stadium for American football and all the history that goes with that. But along with that, as, as I, as you rightly said, when um, once I actually physically lived there and, you know, appreciated the culture, appreciated the day-to-day environment and you go along those surface kind of uh, niceties and positives that come with being able to play football every day, which was not a, a realistic option in, in, in England at that time for a female footballer. Um, I guess there were things that weren't too great about it. Um, it was very much uh, steeped in racism. It was only, I think, one generation away at that time from um, segregation, from um, different toilets, different schools. Pe- uh, people couldn't sit on the same buses. And, and I felt that was far too apparent still in day-to-day life at that time. Uh, you know, it seemed like... I remember trying to get a taxi because I didn't drive and everyone seemed to drive. Nobody seemed to walk anywhere. And I tried to get a taxi from my apartment uh, to go to my lessons. And um, the taxi driver came around. He was African-American and he circled around past me, looked at me and I was like, kind of, yeah, it's me. It's me. And he circled around again. And I was like, yeah, it's me. And he, he drove off and um, I rang the taxi company and they said, Oh, he's um, been called on another, on another call, ma'am. And I was like, okay, that's, bit weird I actually saw him anyway it happened three days in a row and I kind of I thought I need to ask someone and uh, and that's they explained to me that you know that that was the situation that some people still felt really strongly about um white people having uh, huge privileges in comparison to African-American people in that area and that's just how it was and you know having grown up in in Burnley which is quite multicultural um you know, I had friends at college who who come from different backgrounds, from different races, religions, and just wasn't an issue. And certainly in football, you know, friends of, again, different races, different backgrounds, different religions. And, you know, it was just a non, it didn't mean anything. Um, so that's, I start to, as I found in future um, encounters and in my life and my Character, character, I like to challenge these things. Uh, and I was not happy to accept that that was okay. Um, you know, both from African-American people towards white people and, and obviously vice versa, because it's a, a deeper, steep problem than something I could fix at that time. So I decided that after two years and... You Rachel, know, sorry, I, did you find this within the team as well? Was there a no, racial divide in the team? 
Not at all. No. Um, within the team, there was it was great because I could chat to my teammates about these things and they could educate me on them and how how they felt about it, obviously, because um, it's it's something that had been around for so long, which, you know, I was very naive in, in not having any knowledge of that. Yeah, because we should say is uh, Rosa Parks was the famous lady who refused to give up her seat on the bus. That was Montgomery, Alabama, and that was in December 1955. As you said, it's only a generation removed from what you know when you were there at the end of uh, at the end of the 1990s. The buses waited still and lonely in their silent rows, or rode empty through the streets. They were threatened and intimidated, arrested, convicted, and fined, and still they walked. In the rain and the sun and the dark of night, they walked with God and shunned the buses. They walked with God and they rode with God too, for they formed a carpool that was a marvel of quick organization. A network of cars, old and new, of trucks and taxis, reached out across the city and carried people where they wanted to go. You know, there were certain churches that were black churches and there were certain sororities and fraternities where only African-American people would go and certain sororities and fraternities where only white people would go. And I I just couldn't get my head around how, you know, that just didn't make sense to me uh, for any kind of progressive community. That just doesn't make sense at all. So, yeah, it it was, I mean, it's probably one of the the states where it, it was probably still most apparent, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, probably still have those uh, traditions, Um, but it just didn't sit easy. And, you know, I also have a firm belief that if you can't do something about something, then don't worry about it. But I could do something about it and I could move away from that because I didn't want another two years with a uh, four-year qualification degree uh, to really feel uncomfortable about it. So, yeah, that's when uh, after two years and, you know, my career at Alabama had been successful. I'd won, I'd got all, all American status. I'd won goalkeeper of the year. I'd, you know, broken records for um, University of Alabama. And I still have a real affinity with the University of Alabama and my friends that I made there. Uh, but it was just the right thing for me to do, to move on. Uh, having wanted uh, a career, uh, the opportunity to go out to America, I wanted my university uh, experience not to be negative or to be soured so I made a, a pledge to to change it and I did and I moved to the University of Pittsburgh up in the northeast uh, a lot more kind of European influence um, but I'll tell you what the, the overall effect of having gone to America I got the chance in 99 to go with my best mate from Alabama as a birthday present to the women's world cup final we flew up her mom and dad bought us tickets uh, to fly up to the Rose Bowl in California and watch. So I'm a current England national at this point. We hadn't qualified for the World Cup because we weren't very good. And um, flew up to the Rose Bowl in California, watched that game. And I'm sat there in the stands watching that Brandy Chastain moment where she whips off a shirt and shows a sports bar after, um, after scoring a winning penalty. Uh, it being on every newspaper, you know, 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl. And I'm thinking oh my God, I want this for my sport back in England. Like This is so far removed from how women's football is perceived in, in, in England. You know, I'm flying back every month to go and play for England. And, you know, you're kind of almost going a downgraded version compared to a university game. And um, that's when it made me really determined to do everything I could to change women's football in England. 
Um, and, you know, I'm really proud to have been a part of, I guess, that group of players who've gone from women's football being part-time or not even part-time, nothing, uh, not qualifying for major tournaments to leaving it really where it is now. Chastain will take it. She missed a penalty kick against China in the Algon Cup and they lost that game. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Stakhanov's award-winning football mockumentary The Offensive is available to listen to now. After securing Premier League survival last season, Ashwood City have a new boss. The new manager, Sven Goran Eriksson. I am delighted to be the new head coach at Ashwood City Football Club. But unfortunately, the same old chief executive. Oh, fuckity. Fuckity fuck fuck. Stupid comments from an ex-player chanting make Ashwood great again. Big fucking deal. You know, if he thinks that any of those empty words have had even the slightest impact on Patrick Nolan, MBE, then he is dreaming. Stupid big idiot twat fucking wank wank bollock face. Follow Ashwood City on and off the pitch every Premier League match week. I can't even get easy peelers in my local MS at the moment, Sven, let alone a fullback from Rail Sossier, Dad. I just have a list of players I'd like to bring into your squad. <sighs> okay, well, let me know when you have a list of players you'd like to bring out of the squad. Described by The Guardian as a must-listen for football fans. We lied about the corona test result. We isolated our two informed players to stop them playing for England. And now we've asked Man City Football Club to bribe the Premier League on our behalf. I didn't actually ask them to. I asked if they wanted to. It's the same fucking thing. Search The Offensive on your favourite podcast player and listen now. 
what, what was that turning point then? So you'd had that experience. You'd played for England. You've gone to America. You're still playing for England when you're in America. You have that sort of Damascene moment watching the World Cup final. What was the turning point for English uh, uh, women's football when you came back from the States where you thought, right, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're on the right road. Yeah, well, there were a couple of players, me and Kelly Smith, who were out in, in America at that time. And I think both of us saw what we saw and came back feeling 100% more determined to make us individually better, but also to pass on, like, women's football is massive in America. We needed to get the same for for um, in England. So we pass on our, you know, what we've seen, what we heard to people at the FA, and eventually we got people at board level and at, um, at influential level to listen. Um, probably that, that change, the real kind of, where you can actually put a marker in and say, okay, women's football has changed is when we qualified for the World Cup in 2007. Prior to that, 2005, we hosted the Euros um, and we the, the crowds that showed up were unprecedented. So that was definitely a moment where we saw that there was a potential for change. Um, but then for us to continue that ascendancy, um, you know, with the markers being of success, qualifying for the World Cup was something we'd never done before. Um as in when since it had been taken over by the FA in 96. So that was a huge, huge stake in the road where we felt women's football would never go backwards. Um, and investment from the FA was really ramped up. Uh, you got a central like, contract as well, didn't you? That was really yeah, critical. Yeah, a lot of you did. Central contracts had been formalised. Uh, I think we got, we got paid £16,000 a year to be a professional footballer, which at that time, it was like, brilliant. You know, we'd never been paid that much money before to be a footballer. And it allowed us to be either part-time or to live frugally and uh, just, you know, be full-time. Um and, but at that point, you know, I was 27. I didn't, did I want to just kind of play football? I decided I wanted to continue because uh, by this point, I'd come back and joined Everton at 23. Uh, I'd qualified as a teacher uh, in the next couple of years myself um, at John Moore's University. Your mum's so influence to... in there, wasn't it, Rach? Your mum's yeah, influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you qualified late as a teacher, she actually owned a health food shop growing up. Uh, that was her sort of thing. She was very environmentally kind of um, orientated. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you know, seeing her going through the, doing the PGC and working hard when I was probably only about 10, 10 or 11. Yeah, I think my uncle was a teacher. Uh, I enjoyed sort of that. I wanted to be a PE teacher to give back some of the enjoyment and some of the, I think, I think it's the, what I loved about having football was the structure I had, you know, I knew every week I'd be somewhere else, somewhere exciting. Um, the level I got to meant that every year I was looking forward to flying off to new countries every year. Um, looking forward to tournaments in far flung countries that I would never have dreamt of going to if I hadn't have been part of it. So it was, it was, you know, football had given me a really exciting life and, and enjoyment. And so qualifying as a PE teacher was more to give a little bit back, to, to, to children for, for that reason. Well, you talk about visiting places you wouldn't normally go. So we've done Alabama, Pittsburgh, and then Iceland when you came back. You spent two northern summers in Iceland. What what was that experience like, though? Oh, it was ace. Um, there was a, a player who played for England called Karen Burke, who I was playing for Everton with at the time. And it was uh, the first summer I went, I think it was, you know, when, when it was the off-season for Everton. And um, she said... Um, but actually, dead scouse, Karen Burke. 
And she rang me up from Iceland and uh, she went, Brownie, what are you up to? And I was like, oh, I've just I've got a, a Saturday job at the local sports centre. Um, and she went, no, what are you doing like now? This is the Wednesday. And she went um, and she said, well, how about you want to come play for our team? And I said, oh, um, where is it? And she went, Iceland. I was like, okay. And she said, uh, well, we need a goalie for Saturday. Can you come out Friday? And I was like, yeah, all right. So I did. So I flew out on Friday, arrived Friday night. Um, it wasn't actually the mainland of Iceland. It was a team called Ibevaf, um, or IBV, which I think David James has played for. And is it Herman Horidison? I think he was born in Bretagne. Um, so it was a, an island with a, uh, only 5,000 people lived on the island. I flew out there. It was brilliant. My first training session, we, ran, we walked up a volcano, a grassed volcano, and they said, right, can't spend more than a couple of minutes at the top because it gets really hot underfoot. And I was like, all right, got to the top. And it was genuinely really hot at the top. And the training session was, as we were walking up, they were putting slalom poles um, up the, the grass volcano. We got to the top and they said, right, set off. Defenders are going to jump slide tackle, slalom style, down the mountain. Defenders are going to dive, slalom style. How do I, what can get better than this? This is unreal. So yeah, I spent um, I spent the summer off season as it was playing uh, two two consecutive summers playing in Iceland and it was amazing. It was light for twenty two hours a day. We played golf at twelve o'clock at night just because you can. Um, and uh, in the time that I wasn't playing footy, um, me and one of my mates, Sammy Britton, who also used to play for England uh, and Everton, who I was living with over there, uh, we cut grass on the island. So we were the islands. Um, the uh, island's gardeners. Well, you sort of uh, cut the verges and all that sort of stuff, yeah? Well, just Pete, no. Uh, oh, Pete, oh, Pete, oh, I see you went to people's houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah great. And, and ironically, the uh, our manager of the women's team was um, Heimer Helgrimsgottir, who was the uh, manager of men's Iceland team who knocked out England. Really? Brilliant. So Heimer the dentist. I yes. Sorry. He, his wife Dottie played for was centre half for us, and he was our manager. Brilliant! You didn't do the <laughs> you didn't do the thunder clap when you won a game, did you? No, I think that was unfortunately. Now, I mean, I'm guessing you, you had a job. They were all part time. They all had jobs. Your teammates. Yeah, and there was not much else to do on the island. I think something like eighty percent or ninety percent of the island's industry was fishing and processing those fish. So there were some pretty stinky women who showed up for training because most of them worked in the in the fish processing factories. So they'd have these like big waterproof dungarees that they would wear. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty grim. They asked me if I wanted to do that or gardening. I was like, gardening, please. God, so, I want to be outside where it's warm because it was lovely. The weather was pretty good in the summer there, isn't it? Beautiful. And it was lovely. You know, every child who was on uh, school holidays their school holidays were spent painting the lines in the road and taking the weeds out the road. It was a very much a sense of community. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful way of life because it was so relaxed. There was no rat race. There was no kind of, um, there's no real kind of competition. Everybody just lived in harmony. It was genuinely a really refreshing place to be. Oh, that's a, that's a brilliant story. Um, and then you come back and you, you join Everton because Liverpool have been relegated, haven't they? So you've, you've, done, a, you've done a Peter Beardsley and, and uh, God rest his soul, Gary Ablett and a few others who've played for Liverpool and, uh, and my friend Don Hutchison and played for Liverpool and Everton. 
Yes, I have. And, you know, thankfully I went pretty much under the radar because football was pretty low key then. Um, and to be fair, there used to be quite big shifts of, you know, there'd be like seven or eight England players in Everton's team. But then when uh, Everton went down, they'd all move to Liverpool or they'd all move to Doncaster Bell. So it was kind of what happened back then. Uh, so, yeah, I joined Everton and that's where I ran out the rest of my career, 11 years there. And you and you got a chance. Fourteen years after playing in the FA Cup final, you play for for Everton against Arsenal. Are you thinking on the eve of the game? Right, it's time to win this now. I've had quite a long story. I've been a fifteen-year-old who lost on penalties to Croydon in nineteen ninety-five. Now it's time to beat Arsenal and win this. Uh, yeah, just a little bit, and I think that was definitely part of our motivational team talk um, to some of the young guns, as it were, because that's a long stint, you know. To I think at that point we'd come runners up in the league for at least four years, if not five years, to to Arsenal. So we were still going in as massive underdogs, but we did have likes of Farrah Williams, uh, Becky Easton, um, Jill Scott, Natasha Dowie. Jody Handley, Lindsay Johnson, all players who were current England internationals. We had a really strong team. It's just the fact, if you were to, Arsenal could pay their players, we didn't. Um, Arsenal could provide lodgings and housing for you know foreign players to come and play, we couldn't. So all of our players live nearby and could travel to the ground, uh, sorry, to training on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, in so many ways, we were underdogs going into that. And I think that just consolidated what we wanted to do. We were all, we had to be united on and off the pitch to get a performance out that was going to be a team that was so much better resourced than ours. And, you know, it went to extra time, but it that was a magical time for us. Evans with a looping header. Chaplin gets a touch to it, Scott's in there as well, Chaplin again, can turn goalwards, Dowie's made the run, and it's just ahead of Natasha Dowie, is in, oh what a finish from Natasha Dowie, it's a terrific goal, and it should win Everton the FA Cup for the first time, celebrations for the Blues, and it's Natasha Dowie who's done it again. And it was also a magical time to play at the Olympics, wasn't it? I said 82 caps for England, but a, an appearance at the Olympics. Was that as special as all those 82 caps? Because obviously it was a London Games. Uh, yeah, and not just, I mean, that being, being London Games, you've got to like precursor what I say with the fact that we'd, we thought we'd qualified for Beijing 2008. Uh, our, our performances in 2007 World Cup, which is what Olympic qualification is based on. We got to the quarterfinals. And so we had met the criteria to qualify for Beijing. Uh, and we were told that by a head coach and that was part of us celebrating. Um, and then a few months later, they said, actually, sorry, we've had to give you a spot to Sweden because you're not Team GB, you're England. And because they'd never been in that uh, predicament before we never you know made qualification criteria um they'd not thought about it and uh, and so it was you know for those in 2008 who then didn't have the chance 2007 who didn't have the chance to compete into 2008 it meant so much more to formally have the opportunity to to play in 2012 um for me personally i was 32 at that time um Upon squad selection, there were only two goalkeepers selected out across all the home nations rather than three, as there normally is for a, for a major tournament. Uh, at, at this point, I'd already had five operations on my left knee um, and was struggling. 
So I decided that uh, I was, I'd been working for the past six years for Everton in the community on um, education projects going into primary schools and actually working, uh, teaching the BTEC in a secondary school for the last 18 months leading up to the Olympics. And it got to that Christmas uh, before the Olympics. And I thought, if I don't quit uh, now, I'll never know whether I've given it the best shot to um, get myself in that squad that was going to be announced, I think, in April. And so I did. I quit work. Um, I just made sure that I did everything I could to um, make sure my knee was physically in the best place. So I was training every day, but I was allowed to rest as much as I needed to, to rehab as much as I needed to. Uh, and, you know, that I, cu I couldn't have been happier, you know, that things worked out and I did get the chance to, because it wasn't just being there in those Olympics, it was everything building up to it, all the, the media, going for your fittings at Loughborough University, getting to meet so many Olympians. But I do remember that moment of when we went to the Olympic Village finally, and it was the, the women's team and the men's team went into the Olympic Village and Dame Kelly Holmes welcomed us in a little classroom to kind of induct us into the Olympic Village. And she said to us, she said, whether you win a medal or not, you are and you always will now be an Olympian. And that stuck with me. And, you know, I remember the hairs kind of standing up on my arms and just thinking, this is just unbelievable. Having grown up as a little one, following every Olympics, absolutely, you know, thinking Olympians were superstars that I've managed to actually do this um, was just something so, so special. So I think, you know, from the personal journey I've been on through injuries, um, having torn my cruciate and having all those knee operations, it just it felt like this was a reward for everything that I've been through and the determination and resilience that I felt I'd showed through all of that. It, I mean, I'm lucky, Rachel, I've been to half a dozen Olympics. It's the greatest show on earth. I mean, we love football. We love football World Cups, men, women. We love it all. But the Olympics is the greatest show on earth. And so, as you say, to say, to say you're cleaning your teeth one morning, I'm an Olympian. That's amazing, isn't it? That really is. I can see why it makes you so proud. Yeah, it, it was so, so special. And, you know, as well, our kind of worldwide rivals, the USA, Germany, France, they'd all, every every four years, we're going to Olympics because it was not a political uh, issue for them. Uh, you know, they make qualification and they'd go. So it was a major tournament that us as a, as a as a home nation was missing out on from a competitive aspect as well. So we were proud that we got to do that because we were hoping that, you know, forevermore we would have an Olympics team. For whatever reason, it didn't happen in 2016, again, for political reasons. And obviously for 2020, that's not happened. So I'm just hoping that the girls get a chance to do something that I felt was probably the most special footballing moments of my career and other people get to experience that because it was, as you said, the best show on earth. The, the, the women's team have had up till recently Phil Neville as their coach. How has that changed things in terms of perception or tactics or, or, or in any way at all, having somebody of that high profile from the men's game coaching the England women's team? Yeah, I think it was the, the next piece of the puzzle, really, in, in continuing the... the perception of women's football and the credibility of women's football you know everyone in women's football knew that we were we're a professional outfit we trained as the men did um the resources from the FA were getting more and more uh, but it needed probably someone like him to sort of to give us that last bit of credibility and you show that the viewing figures in the world cup in 2019 
people went to the pub to watch the Women's World Cup and that's just never happened before. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think it was... If it was coincidence, then it's a strange coincidence that Manchester United then agreed to have a women's team. Um, you know, I'm sure that he had quite a bit of influence on that. So I think it's been really, really positive. Uh, you know, his coaching skills, I think he's probably improved a lot because that was the question over appointing him. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, his appointment was was excellent because the timing of it, the influence that it's had on a media and a... Um, um, kind of uh, on the public was the right thing at the right time, but also the right time for him to move on. I was in a pub in Cornwall in the semi-final, and it was heaving. You wouldn't have known if you if you taken this picture away and just said it's England in the semi-final. Everyone would go, yeah, of course it's England in the semi-final. Then you put up and it was England women's team. It was absolutely heaving, and and it was and it was men like me watching it. You know, it wasn't heaving with you know five hundred women watching it. It was probably 80% men watching it. Yeah, and that's what makes me... That, that's the proudest thing about knowing that, you know, everyone from my generation of playing who maybe didn't reap the rewards financially, certainly, but even just of exposure-wise, uh, of being a top-level footballer, we all feel so, so proud of where women's football is nowadays. And knowing that we've kind of been there and done our bit to, to have got that ball rolling... It, I had, you know, some people think we might be bitter about it. I'm certainly not. You know, I'm so, so proud of where women's football is now. Rachel, my last question is, is you're in a, a, a family of sportsmen. I mean, your, your husband, Ian, was a very good golfer himself. I mean, he's now Tommy Fleetwood's caddy, but a very good golfer himself. How, how helpful has that been over the years that you, if you know, you both understand the, the space that the other one is occupying because you're both sports people in your marriage. Absolutely, Mark. Because um, cause Ian's only started being a caddy the last five years, pretty much, just short of that. Um, but for the 10 years we were together before that, he had to endure, you know, me being away for long stints, uh, barely seeing each other, um, you know, because I'd, I'd go to work, be at school all day, go straight to training and be back from training at like half 10 at night. And that was the reality of Monday to Friday. Saturday, Sunday, be wherever for a match. And then, you know, I'd be telling him I'm away, away, away with England for a week next week. And so he'd he'd kind of seen what I did and was willing to do. And he supported me in that 100%. Um, and so when the tables turned and I retired from football and then we had our, our um, daughter, Zara, um, she was just short of one when he got the opportunity to, to caddy for Tommy. And I was well aware of what the implications were of that as far as him being away. But, you know, I'd had my time being selfish and uh, which you have to be to be a sports person. Um, and I knew what it takes to, you have to go wholeheartedly. You have to give it hundred percent in what you're doing. And uh, so, yeah, since he's done that, it's been amazing watching him travel around the world. Amazing watching their journey. Cause he wasn't, is Tom, Tommy's best mate. You know, they, they are best friends. So He's emotionally invested in Tommy. Uh, he's not just a caddy. It's not just a job. Uh, and with that, sometimes he comes home and, you know, he's a he's an angry man. And I have to kind of, you know, decipher that that's not aimed at me or, or us, that that's the nature of sport and that's how it can make you feel. So as well as the logistical challenges of, of having two kids now and him being away and 
flouting uh, himself in the sunshine and <laughs> dealing with sunburn and travel uh, issues. And, oh, well, I've had to, you know, I've had to stay in the hotel and have food delivered to me. I'm like, mm, I would love that. Yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah. You turn on the telly when you want to read a book. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've, you know, I'm so bored of watching box sets, he said. I'm like, oh, I'd love that. But uh, no, all jokes aside, he's doing a great job and he's he's been able to pursue you know, a lifelong dream, which is being on the road, you know, living life as a professional golfer. Yeah, he didn't quite make that on tour, but he's got the second best job in the world in in that respect. And, you know, for all, as all consuming as it is being on the road 40 weeks of the year, pretty much, um, you know, he lives and breathes golf. And I think you have to, to do that job. And I, you know, it's great that hopefully now the kids are a bit older, lockdown, we can see an end to that potentially, that we'll get to go on the road with them sometime and, and enjoy some of that as well. Absolutely. Rachel, it's been fantastic talking to you and all your stories. Really, really interesting to hear where your adventure, adventure has taken you so far. And I know a lot more to come. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.